Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, and today I'm joined by Molly Warsh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh. We'll be discussing her new book, American Baroque, Pearls and the Nature of Empire, 1492 to 1700. Molly, thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So your book is a really great analysis and reflection on the pearl trade and sort of the role of pearls in the early modern world. And it also is a really deep reflection on on kind of empire and what it was like in those early centuries. Um, but we can, I want to sort of start a little bit more broadly and talk about the cover, which is a really striking cover. And it also kind of serves as a great introduction into the big ideas of the book. And so I wonder if you could just very quickly describe what's on the cover and why you chose it. Sure, thanks. And I'm delighted to, to be asked because I actually um, have a deep love for the, the little pearl boat that ended up on the cover. It's from um, this incredible find from the early 20th century of a cache of jewels that were hidden in London. And nobody really knows why it was you know, created in the 17th century. And this little boat uh, is, of course, the hull is a Baroque pearl. And I realized after I saw the cover that that's not necessarily obvious. But I, I think it, it becomes clear. My hope is that it becomes clear for people reading the book. That for me, when I saw this jewel, this little tiny boat made out of what would have been on its own, certainly a, an unusual, not to say ugly, little weird pearl as the hull of the boat... For me, it really symbolized part of the larger argument I'm making in the book, which is that pearls were so difficult to control. They were so they were so subjective in their appeal, the vast majority of them, that what one man's trash really was another man's treasure. And in this case, the jeweler who made this saw this peculiar pearl and crafted a jewel out of it, a boat that represented really the maritime imagination, this idea that, that pearls evoked the sea, and that Baroque pearls could be transformed by the imagination into something of value. And so for me, that that jewel, that representation of the maritime imagination, but also just the imagination itself, the power of the imagination, and particularly the power of the individual imagination, uh, that's, that's for me what, what, the, what the jewel symbolized and why I wanted it on the cover. The book, I think, talks also about the imperial imagination and the tension between what individuals can think and do and what empires and, and their servants can think and do. And for me, that, that beautiful, weird little pearl boat uh, encapsulates the sort of um, small scale, but nonetheless really powerful independence of, of the individual imagination. 
And yeah, we can get into a lot of the details and, and you know, the, the title of the book really comes from a term for a certain type of pearl, which becomes so central to the argument that you're making. Um, I, I, if we can, let's just kind of step back for a second and just talk about uh, some of the larger context before we get into the pearls themselves, because I think it really is important to know, um, and you show how important it is to know just the details of, of how pearls even come into being and sort of the ways that they get traded and all the difficulties around that. Um, but I, I want to sort of focus on the fact that, you know, you're really telling a global history. A lot of it is situated in the Caribbean. And so that's, I think, why it's so important for this podcast. Um, um, but a lot of the main characters are really focused on the Spanish Empire, at least in the, the first two thirds of the book. Um, uh, how would you characterize Spain's initial efforts at creating an empire? Because that's such an important question that you're trying to address in this book. I think they were haphazard and chaotic and piecemeal. And I think... Um, I think part of part of what I found compelling and surprising when I started researching the book was just how chaotic they were, these efforts rather to sort of figure out how to control a new world, how to manage the encounters and peoples and products that were coming around as a result of, of this American encounter. And at first I thought, well, here's a story about a, an ambitious emerging empire trying to exert control over these territories and peoples, these subjects and these objects. And I, that is sort of part of the story is a crown trying to figure out how to run its empire. But a larger, a larger truth that I saw as a result of working on this project for many years and looking at all these different kinds of pearl transactions was that that chaos, that early chaos of empire that you see so clearly when you look at the early Spanish empire and how it operated in the Caribbean and beyond the really wildly global series of interactions and collaborations that characterized those early decades, really particularly, I would say, the first half of the 16th century, although much of it continues beyond. What you see there is that, yes, it was chaotic, but that, that chaos really never goes away. That chaos continues to be central to the elaboration of empire going forward. And I think pearls and people's interactions with pearls illuminate that uncertainty, that sort of chaos and ungovernable movement of people and products that shape emerging imperial infrastructures. And so I think you you see that chaos, that that lack of order, that disorder, particularly clearly, if you look at the early Caribbean in the first 50 years of a Spanish and European and African presence there, but it doesn't ever really go away. And it's that's not to say that there aren't changes. It's, it's very true that by the mid-16th century, uh, the Spanish crown tries to sort of take back lots of the prerogatives that they've granted earlier on. And they do that to some success, and certainly an empire and its infrastructures emerges but I think that when you when you sort of peel back the layers and look at how it was functioning or failing to function in those early years, you're able to see some strands of of experimentation and of room for um, really room for chaos that endures and continues to shape the Iberian Empire for the next several hundred years. And as I suggest in the book, is really sort of central to the process of empire in general, whether or not it's occurring in a Spanish imperial sphere or elsewhere. Yeah, and, and so you use pearls as a way of kind of accessing that experimentation, sort of working alongside the chaos. And so pearls, are, I think, are a really great case study for that. Um, let's just sort of first off, what was so enticing not just to the Spanish, but for seemingly everybody across the globe for pearls. So, so we, we'll get into sort of how all the details of how they were formed, but, but what was it that was drawing the Spanish and others to, to seek out this commodity? 
Well, I think as I talk about in the first chapter of my book, they are they have a, they're, they're a jewel that have fascinated people for millennia. They are this weird little byproduct of a, a sort of mishap in nature, right? The accidental um, irritation of a bivalve in some way or another. And then they create this beautiful, little, fragile, organic thing. And I trace sort of the most classic ideas about pearls formation, whether it's dew from the heavens, they're associated with sex, they're associated with the sea, they're associated with processes that are, and and places, right? Like the ocean that are mysterious and enticing and, and sensual and beautiful. So I think, and then there's this simplicity to them. There's this, the fact that pearls really are perfect as soon as you find them, right? All you can do is really spit on them and polish them, maybe drill a hole in them if you want to, but they don't need a lot of complex drilling or refining or polishing. They're just immediately available and they're so easy to move around and hide and they glisten and they reflect light. And of course, I think we think about this as early modernists. We're very aware of this, but I think for those of us who are thinking about pearls and their tremendous appeal over the over millennia, we have to remember that much of this, this was a darker world. This was a world in which luminescence was really prized. So the luminosity of pearls, their ability to reflect light and embody light, also, I think, gave a particular push to their appeal. Um, but they're a really unusual jewel. They're not, they're, you know, there are lots of beautiful jewels out there and there are lots of beautiful organic jewels out there. But the, the mystery of pearls creation, their association with, um, with sex and with the sea, I think, and with light, I think gave them um, a particular symbolic appeal and value. Mm-hmm. And it really, I think, kind of maps onto maybe that the the excitement and enticement of the Americas too that those two things can kind of overlap quite a bit. I, I was just curious that you have so many great um, images in this book, which uh, it was just amazing to see some of the different uses that pearls were put to. And I was curious if there were particularly any strange cases that you came across, either they were in the book or they were not in the book, um, of pearls being incorporated into jewelry or into art in any kind of strange ways. Did, did anything really surprise you in the way that people were were using them? Well, I think if I could have included, you know, if if um, if there were no limits on the amount of time that we can spend on these things, I would have really loved to have incorporated the use of pearls in medicine and in recipes because they surfaced in both places, and I was never able to do much uh, with pearls in that sense. But again, because they were organic, and because they were associated with lots of different um, qualities of the places from which they came, whether that's the sea or a particular location, they could be incorporated in different ways into recipes and then literally consumed. And the idea was that the body consuming the pearl would then take on some of the qualities of the pearl. And I really had not known that going to this project, thinking about pearls. So I really, uh, if I would, were to continue to work on this, I would do more archival digging and find, um, do more explorations of pearls appearance in cooking and in healing, because I think that would be really interesting. I have to say that a lot of the images that I ended up working with, I had perhaps seen out of the corner of my eye in other books or museums, but when I really began thinking about what these images conveyed, I was I was often really struck by them. And I have to say that the Metzius, the moneylender and his wife, that little pile of pearls in the little black velvet dish on the desk, it may seem like one of the sort of least exciting images in the book. But for me, when I saw that with new eyes, having been working on this project for a long time, it was such a powerful sort of representation of how pearls 
could just be homogenized and they just could serve as money, even though, of course, it's a it's a painting, right? It's not a, necessarily a depiction of a, of a scene that actually happened, but it's a scene that could have happened. And that made a really big impression on me of just this little tin of pearls and knowing what I knew about how they were fished, about this particular weird circumstances in which they were created. And then having seen, for example, uh, I include illustrations of the thousands of different kinds of pearls that were contained in this one little chest that was found in the wreck of a Spanish galleon. It was, you know, they were in reality, pearls were highly irregular and different colors and different sizes and weird shapes. And so this image of them just sort of being distorted into this like little lump of, of cash, as it were, in the Metsies really made a big impression on me. Well, I think maybe there's a second book project there on like the pearl diet, like putting pearls <laughs> pearl. into your food and how that can help your, your I don't know, rejuvenation or something. <laughs> I know it makes me think of uh, Amanda Herbert's work on early modern recipes. And I think she would be my go-to person if I were to go down that lane. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the, the pearls themselves and how they're, how they form, because um, this is also kind of a close examination of environmental history and the ways that um, how do you tend fisheries for pearls and, deal with this organic process as opposed to just kind of mining or, or crop production. Um, so, you know, not to get too much in the weeds of the, uh, of oysters, but how, how does the pearl form and then why are those characteristics so important to the story that you're telling, at least in terms of the economics um, and the sort of culture of the Spanish empire? Um, well, it's interesting. Pearls, I argue that, per that pearls had this really profound association with with sexual reproduction. And the earliest ideas, I talk a lot about Pliny the Elder's account of pearls, which was extremely influential, and how he had this sort of cockamamie idea about how pearls were formed. Uh, he knew that they emerged from living creatures. And that aspect of pearls appeal, I believe, was was really central. But he uh, he didn't, he didn't understand how they were made, right? They're not, they're not, uh, there isn't really a process of procreation. There isn't this idea, as he had it, that um, that oysters give birth, right? Or that, that Baroque pearls, that irregular pearls are, or, or dark pearls or oysters miscarriages. He talked about it in very sexualized terms. And as I argue in the book, part of it was the association of pearls with oysters, which evoked female genitalia. There were these ideas about pearls being secret and sexy. What he so that's that's not right, but that is also um, not entirely misplaced in the sense that there is this point of illicit entry that causes the formation of a pearl. Right in the end, pearls really are just mineralized deposits that are formed within soft tissue. That is indeed how pearls are formed. The old adage about a grain of sand is not entirely untrue. Right, usually it has to be something a little tiny crab or a little tiny broken piece of shell that the oyster then generates protective um, uh, nacre around and surrounds, and this becomes a pearl. Um, it becomes a little tiny infiltrator, becomes lodged in the tissue of the mantle of an oyster. I, you know, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this. But it is a process of, of unwanted intrusion, and I found that aspect of pearl's formation to really give a lot of power to their metaphor. How shall I put this? The fact that pearls that were this really essential product of these early post-encounter Americas, and of course the encounter with the Americas was an unwanted intrusion into the Americas, and that pearls, who were themselves the product of an unwanted intrusion into an oyster, were one of the products of this, was a really sort of 
powerful uh, symbolic um, uh, uh, not coincidence, I guess is the right word for it. Oh, they, it. It made pearls a very apt symbol, a very appropriate way of exploring some of the unintended repercussions of that American encounter. That American encounter produced pearls and it produced many, many other byproducts, surprising byproducts of the encounter. So I think for me, they, they represented a really powerful metaphor for the encounter in the Americas and all that it engendered, much of which was really difficult and painful and coerced and dark, but much of which was very, very beautiful, uh, and all of which was tremendously complex. So let's get into pearls as commodities and how uh, the, the state um, joins into this, uh, this, this story. So, uh, you know, you have these pearls, you have to fish for them. Um, you might want to say a little bit about that, but, but I'm kind of curious because a central part of what you're arguing here is the, the challenges that the state has in trying to regulate uh, the pearl industry and the pearl economy. And so could you just kind of get into some detail about what it was that was so difficult about pearls um, and their regulation and why the, the state struggled with that for so long? Sure. Um, so they are, in some ways, it's the most obvious point, uh, is the first one to, to address, which is that they're very small and they're very, very easy to hide. It is unusual to come across a perfect large white round pearl. But pearls themselves proliferated in those early years. And there were reports early on in, in these early Spanish encounters in the fisheries of, of boats going out to uh, harvest oysters and people opening these oysters and having them be so full of, of pearls of all sorts that the men who were trying to eat the oysters were unable to even chew because they just kept on crunching on pearls. They were There were thousands, millions of them, and they were easy to hide. They were easy to lose. They were a nightmare for an imperial servant, for a crown servant trying to say, okay, let's put these in orderly boxes and you must pay the tax of 20% to the crown. They just were impossible to keep track of. So that was one aspect of them, just their size and their, uh, their quantity. But the other essential difficulty of pearls is that they are both... Um, they are a unit, right? You can recognize a pearl when you see one, but they are infinite in their variety. And now pearls are worth the same amount of money. Indeed, they have a highly subjective beauty and value once you get away from those extremely rare, perfect, round, large white pearls. So the question facing the early Spanish crown in these fisheries was, okay, well, pearls are valuable and they can be used even if they're not um, perfect and large and white and round. But how do we tax them? How do we possibly assess the value of these widely different specimens? So what they did was they introduced a very uh, unstable and um, imperfect vocabulary that was designed to help them assess the worth of different types of pearls. And the book's title, American Baroque, the word Baroque is an English version of the Spanish term barroica, which was the term used to denote an irregular misshapen pearl. And really comes, I argue in the book, comes to stand, it gives us the word Baroque, it comes to stand for um, irregular expression, for, for basically unbounded expression, expression that cannot be contained. And pearls indeed could not be contained. Even all of these different words that were supposed to categorize pearls depending on their uses. There were Ave Marias, which were supposed to be put in rosaries. There were Asiento pearls that were flat on one side and round on another. 
Some of these tumors endured, some of them changed over time. But in the end, they were a very imperfect way of trying to recognize the infinite and uncontrollable variety of this jewel at, for taxation purposes. Uh, and pearls, of course, couldn't be regulated easily. And indeed, later, about 100 years, even later, uh, after Columbus in the late 16th and even early 17th century, in the zone around the Caribbean pearl fisheries, it's an impoverished area. Uh, the only thing that this region has a lot of is pearls. They're constantly complaining that they don't have enough food, they don't have enough wood, et cetera, et cetera. In many ways, this is a very typical colonial story, and they are constantly sending requests for help to the crown from this region of what is now Venezuela. And what the crown decides to do, they say, well, you're using pearls as currency. There isn't enough specie, you say, so you're using pearls as currency. We're going to try to regulate the use of pearls as currency. So they try to put in, once again, these elaborate measures to say, okay, this amount, this weight of pearls of this quality will buy you this cut of meat, or this amount of pearls of this quality will buy you X amount of eggs, et cetera, et cetera. And they even um, design little pearl weights to try to help people put these currency regulations into play. And it's a complete failure because on the ground, what happens is this subject the subjective beauty of pearls, the subjective appeal of pearls frustrates all of these attempts. So you have lots of disputes of people saying, I took the required amount of pearls to the meat store to try to buy this meat and the butcher refused to sell it to me because he said that it wasn't actually a X kind of pearl, it was a Y kind of pearl. And in the end, it just failed. And that's that's my larger argument about pearls is they just they defy this type of regulation that is indeed one of the hallmarks of the emerging early modern state is of trying to regulate value and to, to manipulate value and move it in directed challenges, in directed channels rather. And pearls just defy that. People, people see different things in pearls and they believe that they're, they translate uh, into economic value in wildly different ways. Yeah. And I think we'll obviously kind of get into a little bit of those issues um, slightly later too, when we talk about attempts really in the 17th century to kind of crack down on it even more aggressively. Um, but I just want to uh, talk about also the labor behind getting these pearls, because you do a really great job of showing um, the communities that are tasked with doing that, both indigenous communities, but also um, enslaved Africans who are brought over to fish for pearls. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about sort of the complications around the labor of actually just getting the oysters and getting the pearls out of them, um, because that's also crucial to this this issue of regulation. Yeah, so it changes a lot over time. In some ways, um, the composition and size of the diving crews in the Caribbean, and it's and I want to sort of talk about these separately because the labor regimes that characterized pearl fishing in the Caribbean versus pearl harvesting in rivers in Northern Europe or elsewhere for that matter, or pearl fishing in Sri Lanka, there are very important variations in all of these places that I touch upon. In the Caribbean. I would say there are two major factors. One is that the labor of diving is skilled and difficult and and hard. And on, on top of it, you need to know where the oyster banks are, where you have reefs of oysters. And that requires a lot of expertise and a lot of careful attention to the landscape. Um, and on top of that, part of that expertise is knowing which oysters to harvest. And I would say that one of the things that became did not become clear to me until I actually went to visit these Pearl Islands um, a couple of years after I finished my dissertation was the clarity of the water. And granted, I was seeing these coastal Caribbean waters 500 years after the encounters I was describing, but the, the relative... Um, uh, 
shallow depths and also just the clarity, the, the ease with which you could see to the bottom of the Caribbean really explained a lot to me or it made me think a lot about how important it is to really be aware of the particular conditions of bodies of water when you're talking about this kind of diving labor occurring on their surfaces and, and under the waves. So what occurred is early on when Spaniards first began sort of trading and bartering for pearls, pearls in the Americas were worshipped for many of the same reasons uh, as they were elsewhere in the world. They were, they were beautiful, they were organic, they were luminescent, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that pearl harvesting was new or introduced by Europeans, um, or for that matter, the Africans who were present in the fisheries from the earliest days. Local indigenous peoples, Guayquerias, were already harvesting pearls themselves. And so they were doing business with Spaniards and they would show them, they would either trade pearls with them or show them where the banks were. This labor becomes increasingly uh, violent as the Spanish desire, they call it at a certain point, codicia de perlas, this greed for pearls, um, leads Spaniards to coerce and enslave indigenous labor. They cast ever wider nets for indigenous labor from around the Caribbean. They seek out people, including the Lucayan inhabitants of the Bahamas, who they think are particularly good divers, who have, rep who have reputations for being really adept swimmers and divers. And they begin forcing people to dive for oysters. And very soon, very early on into these pearl fisheries operation, they also begin bringing in enslaved Africans and they seek uh, regularly, they seek out enslaved Africans from uh, riverine regions, people who are also known to be good watermen. This labor at first, the idea is, and indeed this endures throughout the two centuries that I discuss in the book, in theory, the oysters are to be gathered into the boat. This is a supervised process. Then the oysters are to be brought back to shore and then opened under the watchful gaze of a supervisor on land. And then all the pearls neatly separated into their appropriate categories, depending on people's adherence to this elaborate vocabulary that has been instituted to try to ease taxation. But of course, this goes awry and it's very easy to open oysters in the boats, people can hide good pearls and they can easily disappear. Even if they are opened on land, it's just extremely difficult to prevent people from, from hiding them if they want to hide them. And indeed, this becomes really common in the Caribbean pearl fisheries. Divers keep the best pearls for themselves, so much so that at a certain point, one of these words, which actually is identified by Spaniards as being a Taino word, cacona, cacona, it is it is said in the 16th century, has come to mean two things. It's a word, an indigenous word that comes to signify really high quality pearls. So you can have a cacona pearl and that's just a really good pearl, but it's also a process. And the cacona is also the process by which by the late 16th century, every two weeks, the nominal owners of enslaved divers uh, convene an auction and they buy or are prepared to give away cards, blankets, wine, food in exchange for the enslaved divers returning to them all of the best pearls, all of the caconas, essentially, that they have kept for themselves over the previous two weeks or whatever it was since the last auction. So again, immediately it becomes clear in these fisheries that people just can take pearls with them, hide them, keep them in their mouths, keep them really anywhere. Uh, I won't go into details, but again, they're an easy jewel to, to hide. And it's just impossible to control them or nearly impossible to control them. And by the end of the 16th century and into the early 17th century, there is a 
a frenzy and awareness that oyster banks have been depleted. People are really just uh, pursuing pearls furiously and overfishing the remaining banks, competing desperately. There's some amazing descriptions of um, competing oyster boat crews rushing to the site of a new oyster bank uh, reef and fighting and destroying, and it's they, they're never explicit about how, but presumably with oars or with who knows, the hulls of ships, destroying the oyster banks as they compete fiercely to, to basically plunder these banks for new oysters that might contain pearls. And at this point, when people are this um, sort of frantic to get pearls, they've even ceased any sort of pretense of waiting to get on land before they open them. And instead they have these containers. And again, they use the words they use to describe these containers are fascinating because they are of indigenous uh, origin. People are opening oysters and in the boats and they're supposed to be putting pearls of different kinds of different qualities in these different um, little containers called totumas. But of course that doesn't work either. And in all of this too, we have some amazing, um, we have some amazing records in disputes over how to harvest pearls, about how to sort of continue to, to make money from pearls without destroying the oyster banks. We have incredible records of the care that indigenous and African divers paid to the ecology of these reefs, who they knew how to listen for different species that were present in these reefs, whether they're snapping shrimp, as I discussed in my political article, I, my political ecology article in the William and Mary Quarterly a few years ago. They they look they look and they listen and they they use their knowledge of this sonic uh, maritime landscape to help identify rich oyster reefs, but also to distinguish between. Um, Oysters that are ready to be harvested, that are that are mature, and um, growing oysters that need to particularly uh, be left alone in a particular type of underwater seagrass. Anyway, it's a very complex, uh, it's a complex and brutal type of labor that leads to many awful deaths as divers are forced to make dives all day long, and their eardrums burst, and they get all sorts of uh, physical ailments as a result of this. Not to mention the violence that that is ever present in these communities um, of enslaved peoples. But there's a ton of expertise and there's a fair amount of autonomy among the divers that allows them to really, um, if not entirely control, hugely shape the circulation of pearls. And that's just in the Caribbean. I, in, in, in river pearl fishing landscapes, again, these have long been part of local vernacular patterns of resource cultivation. They are natural resources. Um, I think it's sort of a topic for another discussion, but one of the interesting um, conversations I had as I was finishing up research on this book, I was doing research in Northern Scotland and talking with, with people who are very familiar with the landscapes around Northern Scotland's rivers. And they were talking about how there's a lot of continuity in disputes over, for example, for example salmon fishing rights and how there's People have long-standing notions of what their rights to the natural resources that pass through their land should be, and that these run into private property claims and um, and conservation approaches of the state. And I think there is a lot of continuity there. So again, 
these are they're a hard jewel to control. People have not only because of their physical qualities, but because they come out of landscapes that are intimately known and intimately harvested and tended to um, by many different contenders, by many different people who want to do very different things with them. Or sometimes they want to do the same thing with them, but they but they want to make that decision. And that is a real point of continuity, whether you're looking at the Caribbean or you're looking at Northern Europe or you're looking at uh, the waters uh, in between uh, India and Sri Lanka. Yeah, and one of the things that I think sort of stands out um, in all that is is maybe the degree of local control that goes on with this. And you know, I was really stunned at sort of the ways in which some of these indigenous divers and, and both enslaved indigenous and enslaved African divers were asserting some degree of control. And I think it kind of builds into your larger argument, especially in the second half of the book, where you're you're talking about uh, in the 17th century more efforts to crack down or regulate this trade not necessarily successfully, but um, I wonder if this kind of transformed your sense of, of the importance of the local in imperial stories and if, if it kind of gave you a new sense of how these early modern empires worked. Yeah, it really did. And I think for me, part of, um, part of the book, I think, uh, is about is really about thinking about the centrality, the importance of these of these local, of these small-scale political economies. And by that, I mean practices of wealth cultivation and circulation and, and everything that went into that, right? The politics being politics of land use, politics of water use. All of that shaped the way people thought about value and worth, not just of the land and of the goods produced by the land and the sea, but also of their own value and worth and what they had a right to. I think it's really important to think about these local, small-scale expressions of worth, of expressions of, of people's ideas about where value came from, where value resided, how to, how to create it, how to cultivate it, how to share it, and to think about how those local, small-scale visions shaped and sometimes coincided with, sometimes really, um, really were at odds with emerging imperial ideas about wealth management. And that is, um, that for me ended up being really at the heart of what I was arguing in the book in terms of the importance of what we can learn about the early modern world from looking at pearls. I think we see a very clear cut uh, glimpse of, of this process, right? Of this sort of productive tension between small scale practice, small scale political economy, and large-scale imperial visions of the same. And I certainly don't think pearls are the only arena, the only good that could offer us such a glimpse, but I think they offer us um, an unusual one and an interesting one. Do you think that the scholarship has been a little bit too um, complementary of the potential efficiencies or strength of these empires in this period? I mean, I think what sort of stands out in your book is, is the degree to which there was this kind of chaos to it. Um, uh, do you think that there needs to be a kind of correction in terms of how we view at least these early efforts at large state control? I do think so. I mean, I think people, I think people who, I think scholars of the early modern period are increasingly aware of this, but I think there's a, and, and by this, I mean this sort of chaotic, uh, and imperfect nature of early modern empires. But I think that there's a real lag time between, a sort of scholarly recognition of this, these disorderly processes, these really cacophony of voices and approaches that characterized these violent and changing and, and unfamiliar 
uh, encounters that were really um, transforming the world in this period and our ideas about empire. I mean, the, the word empire is so common. It conveys power. It conveys into sort of the modern ear. It conveys um, exoticism and allure. And above all, I would say it, it connotes uh, stability. Not, again, not to people who are really in the weeds in the archives looking at empire up close and personal, but in the popular imagination, in, in depictions of um, empire in the movies or in, I don't know, in general, I would say there's this idea that empire is um, associated with a really, really powerful central government and sort of ironclad fences and rules and regulations. When in reality, we increasingly see, and it's hardly my book alone, indeed, it's really so many works of recent history are showing just how um, how porous these boundaries were, how people went back and forth, how rules really um, did not function as they were supposed to. And, and, and I think we have some catching up to do. I think we still think of this period as one of really stark dividing lines between empires. And it's not that they weren't there. There were fierce competitions and fierce and bloody battles for for resources and for religion and for, for control really over the early modern world. And those differences mattered. But I think that um, it was a messy process. It wasn't just sort of iron-willed, iron-clad behemoth empires going to battle with each other. The elaboration of empire was actually done on the ground in a very imperfect way. It was a lot of back and forth between people located at the... Um, centers of power and people located on the peripheries. And I think what we can do more of is pay attention to what that conversation looked like. And my argument is that that conversation, there, it took place in a lot of different ways and a lot of different places. But one of the most interesting arenas in which that conversation about what empire would look like, what it would mean in terms of taxation, in terms of resource use, in terms of subjecthood, took place around people's engagement with the natural world. And that's, that's where my book fits in, I think. Well, well maybe as we, we get close to, to wrapping up and kind of cover a little bit more of the, the last part of the book, which, which goes away from the Caribbean, but is still really centrally, obviously, involved with the issue of pearls. Um, you bring in Northern Europe as uh, not really even a counterpoint, but as a pretty important part of the story. And I'm wondering what sort of, you mentioned this earlier, but sort of the fisheries in Scotland and also in Scandinavia, um, what did that do to shape your sense of kind of the later stage of this period, especially when the Spanish, again, are, are sort of flailing to try to figure out how to, to, to make something out of this chaotic trade? I think what it did for me, and I, I have to say here that I will never forget the moment that I was working in Amsterdam in the archives of the Jewish community of Amsterdam, and I was working in the ledger of a Portuguese jeweler. And just looking at what he was paying for pearls and where they were coming from. And I started coming across this reference to Scottish pearls. And I just thought, there's no way that they're actually Scottish pearls. And indeed, sometimes the phrase Scottish pearls, Scotch pearls was used to just denote river pearls. But I still, my intention was, was uh, it caught my attention. And I thought, what is going on here? And that led me to look for a grant to get to Scotland. And that was sort of my, the beginning of my engagement with sort of Northern European pearls. And it really um, opened my eyes and made me realize the extent to which pearls popularity not only persisted, but expanded. And for me, 
finding that thread and tugging at it and finding myself going into into northern European uh, river pearl producing communities and thinking about what they were doing and why made me realize that there was this other part of the story that I really needed to tell. Because my first reaction was, why does anybody really care about pearls anymore at this point? And this had always been the sort of um, the critique that I had to deal with all the time when this project was in its earliest and, and really even middle stages was, well, okay, maybe pearls were interesting for a minute when they were this, you know, incredible Caribbean boom, but then they're so easily um, outvalued by other commodities, be they agricultural, be they silver, be they what have you, nobody cares about pearls anymore. Who really cares? And when I came across the Northern European pearls, I thought to myself, well, what is going on here? And and why are they the subject? Why are people still trading in them? And I, when I began to take that question really seriously and to think about that question of, well, why are pearls still so coveted? Why is there this push to try to control river pearl fishing in Scotland and then in Sweden? Then I really had to think hard about what was happening. And it was there that I began to realize that pearls, it was this power of pearls in the imagination, the evocative power that is represented by the boat on the cover of my book to evoke maritime empire, to evoke the exoticism of expansion, the exoticism of this particular early modern moment in time, when people are thinking about and have access to the the world in, in ways that are really new and exciting. And pearls, because they are a maritime jewel, because they are increasingly associated, and I talk about this at some length in the book, they're increasingly associated with exotic, distinct labor regimes. They are a jewel that symbolizes the power to discover and learn about new products and new people and new places. And that means one thing to imperial governments that are trying to control those processes, but to consumers, they're a way of having your little tiny bit of that exoticism, right? To have a scotch pearl, if you are in the Mughal court in India, that says something, right? That, that, that conveys access to these trade connections, the power to participate in this world of increasingly common interactions and connections. And so pearls become a symbol of the exotic, a symbol of the distant. They can you can never really prove where a pearl is from, but you can you can assign it an origin that increases its value, right? That appeals to the imagination of the buyer, depending on what the seller thinks that should be. So for me, that really beginning to think about to try to explain the conundrum of why are people fishing? Why why does this British crown, why does the Swedish crown, why in God's name do they care about pearls coming out of the rivers? And the bottom line is because they were really sought after jewels. They were the jewel of the moment. They were a jewel like that little boat on the cover conveys that summoned up the power, the excitement, the violence, the expansion of this particular moment of maritime empire. And it's only when we recognize that aspect of Pearl's appeal in this precise moment of time that we can understand why they continued to interest crowns and people, even though they were had so long ago been eclipsed by other products as a source of, uh, of wealth. It was their power, the power of the imagination, I think, that really kept them on the forefront of people's minds. Yeah, and I think it's a really great way to integrate both that idea of the imagination, but also kind of the politics and the economics around 
um, you, you know, a, a certain trade that goes across the globe, right? You know, it's not just sort of this singular focus on one empire, but it's the ways in which these empires inform one another and, and feed off each other and, and influence one another. I think it's a really great beta to, to end the book. Um, uh, to, to, to maybe just ask a, a question that's not really uh, exactly about the argument, but I, I'm just curious because you're dealing with this commodity that was oftentimes hidden away or um, there was this kind of chaos surrounding it's it's fishing and it's it's um, put into the market. Uh, what were some of the challenges of, of just studying the pearl as a commodity? There's obviously a lot of great information you have in here from published accounts, people talking about the pearl and, and ideas of what it is and what it means. Um, but what were some of the biggest challenges of actually tracing the movement of these these little gems? Well, I think the the biggest challenge is just that they didn't, and this is uh, in general true of, of valuable commodity trades, and I would say particularly jewels, people trading in pearls were not eager to announce <laughs> announce that fact, right? So you were never going to sort of get big notes from jewelers posted in newspapers or something, you know, arriving this Tuesday from Venezuela, a boat containing thousands of pounds worth of pearls. People wanted to keep it a secret. They wanted to be able to control um, the price and the and knowledge of when pearls were arriving, they wanted to avoid theft. So there were not um, they're not particularly easy to trace. People, of course, who were moving pearls in much smaller quantities were similarly um, whether they whether they had paid taxes on them, whether this was legal trade or whether it was uh, untaxed, uh, semi legal or illegal trade. People were not eager to announce them, and so mainly you find out about pearl trading when something goes wrong, when a shipment is stolen or when somebody gets caught smuggling, it's very difficult to find records of their movement. There are some there are some existing records of Spanish taxation on pearls from the early 16th century that were um, known about and, and mined by this fabulous scholar, Enrique Ote, on whom I rely extensively on the early Venezuelan materials uh, by the Chanus in their volumes on early Atlantic trade. But the problem with those tax records is, A, they disappear, and then you lose track of pearl shipments from the, from Venezuela. But also they're inaccurate, because again, even taxation records, one of my larger points about pearls is that it's very, very easy to, to not pay the tax man, right? So even if the records were an accurate representation of 20% of the total harvest, uh, they still only convey 20%. What about that other 80% that were that was traveling in private hands and records that got lost? So as soon as I realized I was never going to have really reliable, regular records of pearl shipments, even if I were to come across them, they would have, um, they would have underrepresented the total movement of pearls. Then I realized I was looking at a story that was really scattered, that I was going to have to piece together from little tidbits um, but rather than finding there was a big uh, sort of turning point for me when I stopped seeing that as an impediment to me telling the story, but instead realized that that was the story, right? This was a way of thinking about how people got around or sometimes used these emergent uh, sort of oceanic infrastructures, imperial infrastructures to do business and what got lost and what got found and and how did people um how did people move within these emerging circuits and beyond these emerging circuits and when did they fail and and find themselves caught in the web of 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 tax hungry crowns or tax hungry administrators and to me that i said okay well that's the story i'm telling i'm not telling a story of 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 orderly and 
um, orderly and regularly taxed trade. I'm telling a different kind of story. And it made it, I had to have a lot of patience looking for these records here and there and thinking about what it all meant together. I think I thought about this project from its earliest days as a sort of um, pointillist rendition of the early modern world. And it took me a while of collecting the dots before I could finally sort of step back from the canvas and think about the larger shape that the dots were revealing. Um, but that's how I would describe the process. Well, I think it came together really well. Um, Thank you. I wonder if you could just talk very briefly um, if, about sort of the stuff that you're working on now. The, the book is out. Um, what's your next step? Yeah. Um, so I'm working on a project. It's really in its early days, but I'm calling it Servants of the Seasons, Itinerant Labor and Environmental Flux in Historical Perspective. And I'm I'm interested in types of impermanent and semi-permanent uh, labor arrangements that characterized um, how people engaged with the world of work, how they thought about their labor and who could command it. Uh, and these types of arrangements were neither that they fell between really the categories of slavery and freedom. And I'm particularly interested in how these, uh, and of course the most familiar type of, of engagement like this is indenture. Um, I'm interested particularly in how these types of arrangements uh, fluctuated around the natural world and its own cycles. So I'm particularly interested in, in instances such as those I came across in the Pearl Book of people who would sign up um, under very strict and constraining circumstances to, for example, participate in an exploratory voyage um, uh, in territories claimed by the Spanish crown. And they would be only allowed to participate for the duration of the voyage. And then they had to sign very strict terms about when they would go back. And I wonder who are these people and and how did their, what were they doing for the rest of the year? Why did they enter into this particular type of arrangement? How did it fit into the rest of their working life? How did they understand um, this particular type of engagement versus what they did for the rest of the year. Another example that I've been thinking about recently is um, a case of soldiers from the south of Spain who would serve in summer months as as guards, basically, on forts watching for hostile fleets approaching in the summers. And I thought to myself, well, that's seasonal labor, but how does it relate? What do they do for the rest of the year? Um, how is it thought of? Who, to whom, who pays their wages? Or how is this negotiated? And I think, in general, that we have... Um, we have an enduring sort of binary approach to thinking about labor in the early modern world of free versus slave. And I think there's still more work to be done on thinking about what happened in between those categories and particularly what happened in relationship to, um, to the cycles of the natural world and also political cycles. So I'm, I'm interested in exploring that, that intersection. The big doubt for me is whether I'm going to write this book as an early modern book and, and think about these types of arrangements as they, what they looked like in the 16th and 17th centuries, or if I'm going to pull on my, um, my sort of interest in uh, world history and think about these types of arrangements over time uh, for a much longer period, say from roughly 1500 to the present day. Um, because I think these are, of course, particularly, I would say, in today's political climate, thinking about labor and migration and fluctuations in the natural world and seasonality of movement and itinerant labor. Uh, these are certainly present in the early modern world, but they are certainly present today. And I think that it would be interesting to um, trace their uh, change and continuity in these types of relationships over time and, and space. So that's where I'm headed. Well, that sounds great. I hope you can get it done 
Sooner rather than later, it sounds really exciting. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> you take some rest as well. You just had this book come out. But um, it, it, the, the book, again, is American Baroque, Pearls and Nature of Empire, 1492 to 1700. And um, it's just a, a really fantastic example of global history with a very nuanced argument, lots of evidence. Um, so I want to thank you thank for... You so, for thank you so much. Oh, of course. Well, thanks for joining me. And um, I look forward to the next project. It's a pleasure. Right. Thanks so much. Bye, Molly.